This is the Unity Community of Central Oregon podcast. Happy fall. Happy equinox. What an abrupt shift in temperature, huh? So uh, what do you call a small pepper in the fall? A little chili. <laughs> Between Nate and I, this is, this is I was already going to tell that dorky joke before you told yours. Um, and gosh, Soulshine, really, that, that's a, what a privilege and feels like also a heavier <laughs> responsibility to get up to talk after a performance like that. Thank you. Amazing. So yeah, so each of us moves through life viewing the world around us through a set of beliefs that we've taken in, a set of assumptions that we're accepting. These this lens, it influences literally all of our perceptions. It influences our values. In addition to our individual worldviews that we start laying down as little kids, we all are swimming through a cultural stew, through a cultural collective worldview that dramatically also influences our life experiences. And this is, this is true no matter what culture you're raised in. There is a collective worldview. And this is, becomes programming that we overlay on virtually everything that we experience. And it's often um, either unconscious or subconscious, but it has tremendous influence over our levels of peace and happiness or lack thereof. Now, one of the most intriguing things about worldview is that some of it's true and some of it's not. Just because we believe a thing doesn't necessarily mean that it is actually truth. And the more aware we can become, especially of those sub and unconscious beliefs, the more agency, the more control we can have over our experiences in our own individual lives and also over our ability to shape society. Now today I'm going to talk a little bit about the cultural worldview that we share mostly in this culture that we're in together and then I'm going to bring it um, down into our personal worldviews and mindsets. The worldview that currently dominates most of humanity is Western consumerism. That's an actual ideology. It is, you can Google it, you can look it up. It's a structure, a, a societal structure that views people as customers and consumers and that urges them to buy, us to buy things. That is the basis of this connected global economy that is the driving force of our cultural worldview at this time. Consumerism is inextricably linked to extractive capitalism. We extract resources from nature, and we extract time and money from people in the roles of laborers, workers, and then consumers. That is the collective that we're all navigating together. And this kind of extractive capitalism is designed to mostly benefit the people who already possess the wealth and who have, who own the means of producing all the products that we are showered with. And of course, you all know, part of that culture, that collective mindset that we're in is a really, really powerful 
subtle, sophisticated marketing industry that continuously feeds us the story that we need more stuff, that we're going to gain more fulfillment, more happiness through material possession. And we are all, even those who are aware of this and try to resist it, we're susceptible to it because evolutionarily, our brains are wired to it. It, it, it is literally related to the fight or flight type of um, hormonal structure that we developed as we were moving along as a species in the form of evolution. There is proven to be that we will actually have a hit of the feel-good um, chemical dopamine when we make a purchase, even when we know we're going to have buyer's remorse afterwards. And anytime you have repeated dopamine hits, that can become addictive or at very least habitual. This is what we're navigating together. Western consumerism consistently tells us stories like more stuff is always better. You're going to be way sexier, way cooler if you buy that new car or that new cell phone or that new fill in the blank, that new outfit. And that it tells us that our worth as a human being is largely based on our bank account or how much stuff we have, how much wealth we have. Those are stories that we get in this culture a lot. It's the same worldview that tells us that humans are apart from and superior to all the rest of nature, all the other animals that we prayed for, all of everything. That's part of this worldview. It tells us that it's better or at least acceptable to have massive factory farms so that we can have cheap meat endless supplies of plastic gadgets and things, that, though it's, that it's acceptable to have those things rather than having landscapes, skies, and oceans that are filled with glorious, amazing, diverse creatures. That's part of the story that we're all swimming through together. Now, I would like to point out that such a worldview and our current economic system, I do not believe, could have taken shape if it were not from a consciousness of separation, a consciousness of viewing ourselves apart from one another, apart from all the rest of nature that we are actually inextricably connected to. It also required a, a separation, a dropping of the concept of the sacred. This had to be at play in order to wind up in this soup that we're swimming through right now. It's a worldview and a system that is driven by and that drives spiritual starvation. It's also a worldview that is failing right now. It is shifting right now. It has run a course and we're beginning to see that left and right. Right now as I speak, there are massive worker strikes in, uh, across multiple industries, disruptive worker strikes. There are environmental protests going on all around the globe. There are movements to disinvest in a destructive financial system, to move our money differently. There are demands for social justice, particularly for uh, groups and populations who have been most harmed or are being most harmed by the current status quo system. Now, and nature, is kind of pounding us right now. She's flexing her muscles and showing us who's boss. All of this stuff is happening and we can tend to think that these are all separate issues. 
in these various silos, you're an environmentalist over here or a social activist over there, it's actually the same thing. It is the turning away from what we have considered to be a norm for quite some time. It is the beginning of birthing a whole new way, a new way coming forth. We are all in the middle of a collective mindset shift. That's a trippy, that's a trippy thing to be experiencing. When the old ways that we are going about things, the ways we're doing things, whether it's in our personal lives or in our collective at a societal level, when those become fundamentally unsustainable, change happens, right? It happens in our own lives and it's gonna happen, it is happening at that macro level because nature itself will not sustain completely unsustainable ways of being for any species, including our own. Much of this, what we see in here, I think, and I, I deal in these realms a lot, so I know there's a lot of fear about this. It feels tumultuous. It does feel scary. It is kind of, it adds to a sense of uncertainty, not really knowing what's coming. I just encourage us to consider that this is possibly the most profoundly positive portal that any of us have ever experienced. Right now, these pressure points, nature doesn't evolve until a species hits a pressure point and needs to adapt, needs to make a shift, as, we, as was prayed about earlier. This is potentially the time that we all get to be a part of right now. The greatest urge of creation is begetting more creation. That is still alive, right? The mind of God is not about diminishment. And I say mind with a capital M. This divine mind that we are all a part of is not about contraction or diminishment. It's about expansion and creation. It's about beauty. I speak about these topics a lot because I'm a geek, but also because I truly believe that the more of us who question, even if we don't have the complete answers, the more of us who question status quo systems, who question norms, just because a thing is normal doesn't mean it's good, right? The more of us who do that, and the more of us who, as much as we can, while we are in a system, do what we can to not just blindly perpetuate an unhealthy system. The more of us that do that, I think the more quickly and peacefully and wisely we will make this evolutionary transition that we are in the midst of. Now, you know, I have always loved post-apocalyptic stories. And I think initially part of it was because I thought I was kind of a badass. You know, I'm strong and I'm fit and I thought, I thought I would do pretty well in a dystopian survivalist setting. <laughs> it was a little fantasy I was playing for myself. Now I'm 56 and I got a lot of hard miles and hardware in this body and I've co-created this little life that I, that I love and is peaceful and the whole survivalist dystopian thing does not seem so good to me now. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, they are very unlikely to have wonderfully fun dog agility competitions in a truly apocalyptic setting, right? 
so um, I've, I've shifted my, my, my thinking about that a little, but I'm still really drawn to those stories. And that's because the deeper aspect of it is, for whatever reason, as as, from as early as I can remember, I have always sensed the insanity in the current worldview. It's like I could kind of see behind, behind a veil, and I wanted something better. I am now, because I do think our stories are so important, I have recently gotten lit up by this idea of beginning to develop a sort of post-apocalyptic post story. What's this gonna look like when we actually start redesigning civilization in a really beautiful way? That's gonna happen. That's, that's, that story just doesn't get told. All the post-apocalyptic stories and TV shows and everything else, they're all about the violence. They're all about the dog-eat-dog you know, dog dog, um, scenario, which I'm gonna get to in a minute. That's an assumption. I don't mean it, Zeke. Zeke knows that. <laughs> That's all right. Um, there are two storylines that thread through this Western consumerism worldview related to, to what I was just speaking about. One is that there's not enough, that everybody can't have enough. That's what drives craziness, like stockpiling toilet paper during COVID. The other, the other one is that human nature is bad and violent and virtually every post-apocalyptic tale tells that story. But what if it's not true? I have recently been reading the book, Humankind, and I so recommend it. Reverend Jane, our senior minister, was recommending this months ago. Um, the author is basically challenging this assumption that basic human nature is dark and violent, and he's doing it in an incredibly well-documented, um, evidence-based way. He's not just putting out speculation. And if you think about it, like he gives a lot of examples that when large-scale disasters hit, we often see the most noble aspects of humans, right? People risk themselves for others. We open our, our homes to strangers. I am going to share three super quick examples of where I have personally experienced that. Decades ago, I was living up in Washington State, and we were in a big flooding event in the watershed that I was in. My own little mobile home in the mobile home park was safe, but just a couple miles down the way, it wasn't. And I was working construction at the time, and I'd been work dealing with a lot of this water. I was cold, I was tired, I was wet, whatever. It was you know, cold outside. But when I heard that my neighbor's homes were about to be flooded and that people, I, I guess it probably was the local city or something, were rushing sand and sandbags, I immediately went. And just, I don't think I ever exchanged a name with anyone. I just filled sandbags and helped them stack to save their home, right? And then I went home and crashed. Several years ago, I was one of the first on the scene to a really pretty horrific head-on motorhome-to-motorhome crash south of Bend. It was clear there were a few fatalities. There had been a road construction crew there and I was the first car behind the wreck. So we were the first on the scene before first responders got there. And you know, fluid everywhere was not a pretty scene. Um, and suddenly in one of the flipped over, the small, real small, more van than motorhome was flipped over, 
a baby started crying. And without even thinking about it, I said, there are babies in there. And the construction, all of us jumped in. And afterwards, we only realized we were wading through gasoline and everything else as we were in there pulling through things and, and getting these two little kids out. They were fine, by the way, which was really great. Um, and then, you know, I think many of us experienced during COVID in all of that early fear and early uncertainty, many of us started um, reaching out to neighbors that we hadn't before or checking in on our elderly friends. And I don't, in my experience, speaking from the eye, I wasn't really thinking in any of those times. It was a feeling. It was an, it was innate, an innate nature of compassion and wanting to help. I think that is more true nature, true human nature, than what Hollywood often portrays. This book, Humankind, gives this really cool juxtaposed story. So how many of you have read Lord of the Flies or had to read Lord of the Flies in school? Right, this is considered classic literature and it's a fictional story about this group of boys who get stranded on a deserted island and they're there for a while and over time they do indeed devolve into violence and nastiness and brutality. Well, the author of Humankind started questioning that story because he did some research on the author of Lord of Flies who happened himself to have a pretty dark outlook. This guy has found a real life Lord of the Flies example. A number of years ago, a group of boys on the island of Tonga, which is way out in the ocean off of Australia and New Zealand, they got a little mischievous and they stole a, a fisherman's boat and they were gonna sail it to eventually New Zealand is where they were headed. And um, I think it was eight boys all total. Within just a day or two, they got hit by a storm, totally didn't know what they were doing, broke the mast. They were at drift on the ocean for eight days, and then they bumped into a little island. It's now called the Island of Ata. It is considered, A-T-A, it is considered um, uninhabitable. And they were there for a year. When they were finally discovered by a, f by a crab fishing um, captain, what they found was that these guys, these young boys, had created this whole civilization where they shared chores. At some times, some got water. They swapped chores out. They had a very organized system going. They actually had one guy that broke a leg really badly, and they figured out how to take care of him as best they could. And when they would fight, when they would have conflict, because we humans do, they had agreed upon a system where the two or however many the kids that were in conflict would go to the opposite sides of the island for a set period of time, and then others would eventually go and get them and they'd bring them back and talk through it and sort it all out. They instinctively knew that they needed to be cooperative and collective and they remained friends through the entire rest of their lives. That is the true Lord of the Fr Flies story. Yeah. I think it's hard sometimes to recognize the scale of system and mindset change that we're in because it's like that old cliche, you can't see the forest for, through the trees because there is so much going on. But I believe staying open to the awareness that we are in a profound 
and profoundly positive and profoundly necessary collective shift is incredibly um, useful. Systems change happens to be one of my professional, way pre-minister days, professional um, areas of training and expertise. And one of the almost universal content, cons, um, constants about system change is it usually doesn't happen in just a smooth, linear way. There are usually aspects, elements of the old system that bulk, that dig in, that don't really want things to change. And I think we're seeing that in our society right now. We're seeing some old remnants that are digging in, right? It's good old boys and good old gals who either want things to stay as they are or even potentially go back. They are the minority. Overall, they are the minority. More of us, most of us, want something better than that. Don't you? And can't you feel the possibility for that? That's a critically important thing because our news doesn't show us that possibility very often. Those are, and I'm a news junkie. I'm not saying don't do it, don't view it, but be smart in how we do it. Um, what if, what if we navigate these bumpy system change times we're in, what if we do this by coming together like the boys on that island, knowing that cooperation is really a survival instinct, knowing that goodness is, is our nature and that it just feels better? What if we navigate this, come through it with a consciousness of oneness and some hope? What if this actually turns out, what if, what if all of this tumult actually turns out to be, bring out the best in us, which is usually what happens when we're in a collective crisis? There are a few fringes who may go off looting, but most of us come together to help. Why would it be any different now in this system change that we're in? What if this actually turns out to be beautiful? I think the more we can hold to Jim's beautiful prayer, the more we can hold open that possibility without just being ostriches putting our head in the sand, the more likely we're gonna get through it in an empowered and beautiful way. You know, imagination is one of Unity's 12 spiritual powers. I speak about those every so often. So often humans use our imagination to torture ourselves, right? What if this is actually a wild, crazy, precious, precarious time when our imagination can help us create a genuinely beautiful world? That possibility exists. Now, a collective worldview is, of course, made up of individual worldviews or mindsets. And if some of you are thinking as I'm speaking, wait a minute, I don't hold I don't really hold those values of Western consumerism. I feel the same way. I do, and I believe there are people in this room who are already challenging this and who are pretty far outside the norm on that in a really great way, in my opinion. And yet we are still in a system. And that's why I share it, because I know I'm not telling many of you anything you don't know. I'm just hopefully giving a little pep talk for us to continue to go deeper and to question harder, and to ask, why am I buying that? Why, why am I looking toward this, right? 
not to beat ourselves up, but just to awaken a little more fully each moment. I've talked before, but I love this concept. In shamanism, there is a, there's, a, there's a concept called an egregory. And what that is, is it's the, it's, the, it's the concept that when enough people start believing in something that's not very healthy, something that is kind of dark, when that gets enough collective momentum, it actually becomes kind of an evil entity itself. You can think of the social calamities of Nazism, slavery. I would put Western consumerism in that same group. It's, a, it's an egregory. And the way you disintegrate an egregory is not shooting it, not strangling it. The more of us who quit accepting it, the smaller it gets. That's how we disintegrate mindsets that are damaging to us. At a personal level, at an individual mindset level, you know, we're all born perfect, absolutely perfect. And then our parents get a hold of us, right? <laughs> as well-intentioned as they are, it's part, of our, it's part of our human pathway. We start developing, we start layering on beliefs that may or may not be true. And they start to shape everything we experience. Now I'm gonna give you a personal example of how, this is gonna seem silly, but how much you can, we can improve our lives when we start questioning that programming, our individual programming. I was raised, particularly by my father, that people were really not to be trusted and that you should be, you know, be ready to protect yourself against all variety of things that happen. And when I first moved into this little home that I love 20 years ago, my little lot um, has a has a adjacent. It could, I could build an um, um, accessory dwelling unit, right? It's zoned. It's got a little spare lot on the side of it that my house doesn't bump into, and it's even fenced off from my main backyard. And very shortly after I moved in there, 20 years ago, um, my neighbors from across the cul-de-sac came over and asked if they could start parking their landscaping business equipment there. Everything in my programming was like, I could hear my dad saying, what if they back into the fence? What if they break their equipment and blame you? You know, what if, it's, what if, it's, what if they won't? All of that, but I had already started questioning those knee-jerk programmings, and my old dog, Elkie, had already taken a real shine to these people, and they have her to thank. I have her to thank, because letting them start to use that lot that I wasn't really using is one of the best moves I've ever made in this life. These people have now become my non-DNA parents, or my not, excuse me, my non-DNA, um, what am I trying to say? Non-DNA family, more like a brother and sister. I have non-DNA parents, that's not these two. They take care of me, they take care of my dogs, they take care of my whole pack. I know for sure if they were to break anything of mine, I'm gonna get it back in better shape than I ever would have. That willingness to question and to trust and to expand was incredibly transformative and paid back way beyond tenfold. Do you hold the beliefs that you're limited? Do you believe you should have done this thing or that thing or that thing at some previous point in your life? Do you believe you don't work hard enough to really get what you want? 
Do you believe that all the bad stuff that's happened to you is just too much to overcome in this lifetime? Do you believe that you're not very important in the grand scheme of things? And do you believe people can't be trusted? These are just some ideas I throw out there. Do we believe we have to struggle so that we'll grow? We're a lot of, lot of us martyrs in the spiritual movement, don't we? That's a common thread. I've heard a lot. I've had it myself. Do we believe that any of those things are true? Do you know for sure that any of those things that may have resonated with you about yourself right there are true? Do you know for sure that they're true? I would offer you don't. We can't, not really. We just choose to believe them. What if we believed I am a powerful spiritual being way beyond the confines of this body? What if we really believed that? What if we believed I am important to every single being I interact with? I am beautiful. I am enough. I am, as that song we sing, I am truly, in fact, holy. And life is good. Human nature is good and kind. And the future is going to be beautiful. Your beliefs are your beliefs. And you are the only one who can change them. And you also are the only one who has the power to do so. A Course in Miracles says one of the most empowered statements we can make is I know nothing because it opens up space on the altars of our minds for truth to flow in. As we gain more and more awareness and agency over our beliefs, our mindsets, our worldviews, we can fundamentally make our lives for the better and make our world better. Much love.